Well, hello. Welcome to Oceanside Church Snow Day Preach. We are really doing it in Nanaimo. Uh, this is the real deal with snow. You know, I used to live in Alberta, and uh, we would watch the evening news, and, you know, they would have a, some shot about Vancouver with a half inch of snow, and, oh, we're all going to die. It's snowmageddon, and we would just laugh in Alberta. But uh, nobody's laughing in Alberta this weekend. We are Canadians this weekend in Nanaimo. We got a serious dump. So thank you for for joining in, and uh, let's just pray before we start. Lord, thank you for the technology to do this, but my heart, Lord, is it's not just a video, Lord, but you would meet people where they are, in the place they're at, in the time they're watching this, Lord. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and touch us, and Jesus, just pray you'd be glorified. In your name, amen. So, been thinking about a strange thing this week, even with all the snow. I've been thinking about fireworks. And uh, if you think about a fireworks show, one thing that's common to all fireworks shows are they start small and they grow. There's a beginning and it gets bigger. You know, the first part's like, oh, you know, and then the next one's, whoa, and pretty soon, whoa, you hear the crowd. And then at the end, of course, it's all over the place, oh, and then it's done. There is a building to the thing. They, they save the best for last, so to speak. And uh, I think people who do fireworks shows might not know that, but I think they actually got that from God because God is a God who saves the best for last. And we want to look at two scriptures. I want to kind of do a mashup of two scriptures that show that uh, as we talk about these two things today and see what an amazing God we have. The first place you want to look is John chapter 2. Uh, this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And uh, he's with a couple of his disciples at a wedding in the very early days. And I'll start reading in John 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, this may seem strange to us in 21st century, but in the first century, to have the wine run out at a wedding, very, very big deal, very rude for the people. And actually, a black mark on the couple as they start their married life together. So, pretty big deal. Mary must have been involved. Maybe it was a family friend behind the scenes. And, you know, good Jewish mother, Jesus, I need your help. And Jesus is like, look, we're just here for the wedding. You know, it's not my time to be doing miracles, but Mary knows and good Jewish mom probably takes him by the ear and, you know, just says the servants do whatever he says. So, verse 6, now there were six stone jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some water out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifest his glory, and his disciples believed in him. We were laughing at Bible school the other night. If you had to choose your first miracle as the Messiah, would this be it? Uh, it seems like a strange miracle to be a first miracle. You know, not too many people knew about it. It was sort of a, a very unseen kind of thing. Maybe some of the servants and a couple of his disciples realized what happened. But 
I think this is an amazing uh, story, and I think it's significant that Jesus starts his public ministry with this miracle, because I think it shows us at least two things about who God is. The first thing I see from this is that God is an extravagant God, you know? Uh, the tradition is bring the good wine first. When everybody's drunk and doesn't know the difference, bring the lousy wine later. And yet God is an extravagant God. He's not a God who cheaps out on things, if you know what I mean. Uh, you know, you might have a friend who's a cheapskate. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, you go to the restaurant and they want to finally divide the bill and now who ate what appetizers and, you know, oh, you take care of the tip, you know. A cheapskate, somebody who borrows your car and brings less gas back in it than when they borrowed it, you know. Uh, this is not what God is like. God is an extravagant God. He brings more than we think is possible, blesses us in more ways than possible. Think about this, it's very intuitive. I mean, a couple of flowers would have been adequate, right? But there's thousands and thousands and kinds of flowers. A star or two in the night sky, wow, miraculous, very cool. And yet thousands, they haven't even figured out how many there are. Uh, so God is an extravagant God. Just look at the kinds of people and our fingerprints. I mean, you know, one kind would have been enough. Ten kinds, billions and billions of individual people. So God's an extravagant God. The second thing I see here is that God saves the best for last. Another way to say that is things get better with God. So again, he brings this good wine out at the end, and it's very much backwards from the world system. The world says, show them your best foot forward, make a good first impression, don't worry about how it turns out. And yet God makes things better as time goes along. He saves the best for last. You think about the new covenant in the Bible, um, how amazing the old covenant was, but the new covenant was even more glorious. We'll look at that in a minute. You think about the glorification of the saints, which is a technical way of just saying, God is always helping us grow after we're saved into Christ-likeness, the glorification of the saints. You think about the new heavens and the new earth, as amazing as this places where we live, and Nanaimo is a stunning place with mountains and oceans and everything in between. This is the warm-up act for the new heavens and the new earth. God is a God who saves the best for last, and this is one of the things that I love about him. I'm going to look at a second scripture um, that really talks about some of these same two things. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll start reading at verse 12. 2 Corinthians 3.12. Since we have such a hope, this is Paul speaking, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put on a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over the hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, there's a lot going on in the Scripture, obviously, and even when you look at the context, there's a lot more things going on. But what Paul is doing is he's contrasting God's activity in the Old Testament versus what God is doing in the New Testament. Um, and he's bringing an illustration from the Old Testament when, when Moses was in the presence of God, his face would glow, but when he went out to speak to the people, he would veil his face. Uh, and Paul is saying, as amazing as that was, 
actually that glory was fading, not only in Moses' face, a picture of that, but the glory of the old covenant was fading compared to what was going to come when Jesus came. So he's comparing God's activity in the Old Testament and God's activity in the New Covenant since Christ's resurrection. So the parallels here, the Old Testament was glorious, but the New Testament, the New Covenant, is even more glorious, if you can say that. You know, we look at the Old Testament sometimes, and we, it's unfortunate we call it the Old Testament. One of my profs calls it the First Testament. That's probably a better name. But, you know, old is outmoded, uninteresting, you know, new, new and improved covenant. Um, the Old Testament is an amazing reflection of who God is. It's worth reading the Old Testament. It's, you know, three-quarters of our Bible is Old Testament. So there's a great value in seeing God's activity because God's the same God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But what Paul's saying is the Old Testament was glorious, but the New Testament is more glorious, if that's something we can be said. God's an extravagant God. So as amazing as what he poured out into the Old Testament, when we see Christ and the revelation of Christ in the New Testament, it's even more glorious. There's more that God is doing in that. Now specifically, I want to drill down into the last three verses, verses 16, 17, and 18. So I invite you to, to look back more carefully. So when you know the context of what he's talking about now, this comparison between the two. But let's look at verse 16. Specifically, Paul says, but when one, meaning a person, an individual person, turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. I think the way to say this is that when you come to Christ, everything changes. I think we underestimate the reality of what takes place when a person becomes a Christian. Second uh, Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Uh, just a little bit earlier in 1 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16, God says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is the veil that Jesus was talking about, that veil that even now people have when they hear the Word of God, apart from the, the waking up of the Holy Spirit in their lives, they have a veil, and they don't understand. It sounds silly to them. But this verse says, the spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is speaking about Christians. So amazing that in Christ, something is fundamentally different about who we were before Christ and after Christ, and we have the mind of Christ. A veil has been removed, and we're able to relate directly to God. Let's go on and look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You know, there's lots of concepts of freedom in our culture, and uh, I think it's sort of a popular understanding, you know, easy rider film kind of, you know, freedom means I do whatever I want, there's no restrictions, no rules, no one tells me what to do. You have to have rules, you have to have, uh, you know, laws, but I don't. That's true freedom. I think that's a serious misunderstanding of freedom because I think biblical freedom talks about the freedom for us to be everything that God has created us to be. And that starts with a personal relationship with God. And where the Lord is, there is spirit, that's capital S, the Holy Spirit, you'll see. Um, in that place, there's true freedom. Freedom from the tyranny of religious activity. So um, all these rules that religions put on us that try to change us from the outside in when we come to know Christ, 
there's a freedom that comes in Christ that actually it's an inside-out transformation. Such a different process when that freedom comes. There's a freedom that comes from the chains of sin. Again, we think sin is great, and when we start into certain sins, it's like, hey, this is really fun. But we all know that sin catches up with us eventually, uh, and it becomes a chain. That's why the devil uses it, uh, because he knows he can, he can hinder us, he can chain us, he can make us ineffective through this sin. But the amazing thing about a relationship with God is that freedom breaks those chains, so we actually have a choice to follow God. Scripture is very clear that apart from Christ, we're stuck in sin. We, didn't, we don't know any other way to do that. But in Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can say no to sin, and there's a freedom that comes in Christ. So that's an amazing reality. And then in verse 18, and we with unveiled faces beholding the, Lord, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Three things in this verse. First is that we have the privilege of looking directly into the face of God. This may sound strange to you, but it's an amazing concept when you look at the Old Testament. There were veils and priests and temples and holy of holies and all kinds of things, that, you know, mountains that would keep you away from God because you'd be fried because God's a holy God and we're an impure people. But in Christ, that veil, the scripture says, was torn from top to bottom and we can look directly into the face of God. It's not like meeting royalty of old. You know, if in old, you've watched old movies, you know, you have to go up to the king, don't make eye contact and bow and stoop down. And, you know, it's not like that. We can look directly into the face of God because of what Jesus has done as Christians. We can see him directly. And this is an amazing thing to have this privilege. So we look at this unveiled face with the glory of the Lord, and we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. The thing that's amazing about God is God doesn't just save us from hell and leave us stuck in our sin. It's not like a one-off rescue mission. You know, you've got your, your secret decoder ring, you're into heaven. Actually, our salvation when we come to know Christ is just the beginning of the amazing things that God wants to do in our life. Theologians talk about this process called sanctification where we're catching up to who we've become in Christ. Salvation was glorious. Yeah, how cool is that? But sanctification, this ongoing process of our becoming more like Christ, is even more glorious. I think I have to laugh when you look at older couples that have been married 30, 40, 50, 60 years. They start to look like each other. You know, have you noticed that? Uh, Dina said, don't say this illustration, but you know, the more you spend time together looking at each other and laughing at the same jokes and living life together, you start to look like each other. And I think that's the reality of the Scripture is as we look into the face of God and spend time relating to Him directly, we start to look like Him. As a matter of fact, the Scripture says He's making us into that image, the image of His Son. He's transforming us, the old habits, the old patterns, the old ways of getting stuck in sin pass away, and we're becoming more like Jesus as we look into His face. So God doesn't save us from hell and and just let us be stuck. The best is yet to come, so to speak, with God. The last thing is amazing here in this process that God doesn't leave us on our own to try to figure this out. But in the end, it says, this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is such a significant understanding that all of this change, we can't do on our own. Uh, God accomplishes this through His Holy Spirit in us. The Scripture says we're the temple of God. This is an amazing mystery for Christians. 
but the Holy Spirit is the one that helps us in this. So God not only wants us to be transformed, he gives us the power for transformation to be able to become more and more like his son. The best is yet to come, and God is an extravagant God. It's an amazing understanding of who God is. So where does this all leave us? Well, uh, here's an illustration that I thought of that you probably will laugh. This is my daughter's very large teddy bear. Um, <laughs> and I think that if we're not careful, we can sort of buy into what I call a teddy bear Christianity. And what I mean by that is teddy bears, oh, cute and cuddly, little teddy bear. He's my friend. He goes to bed with me, right? There's nothing threatening about a teddy bear. It's just all cute and cuddly. But I want you to compare a teddy bear to a real bear. I remember when I was a boy, I was picking huckleberries with my grandmother in a big huckleberry bush uh, field and came around the corner face to face with a big black bear. Fortunately, he was probably more scared than I was. Uh, people always say, be careful, don't get between a, you know, a bear and its cub. I would say, be careful and don't get between my grandmother and her grandson because she chased him off screaming and saying things in Norwegian. But, but a, a bear, a real bear, is very different than a teddy bear. Real bear has power, has emotion, has, has strength. You, you get involved physiologically when a bear shows up. It's the real deal. And I think we've got to be careful to have a Christianity that's a, some kind of teddy bear Christianity, a Christianity that costs us nothing, that expects nothing, that changes nothing. This is not the reality of what the scriptures say to us. God wants us to move on from where we were saved into the image of his son. Matter of fact, living a relationship with Jesus means constant change. I hope that doesn't bum you out. Uh, Jesus is always moving us forward and making us more like him. As a matter of fact, we know at the, at the point of our death, when we come to face to face with Christ or when he returns, that's going to be the completion of this process. But until that happens, he's moving in us and he's creating Jesus. God is creating Jesus in us. And it's constant change. So when someone says, I'm stuck and I haven't changed in the Christian life, I want you to know that's abnormal Christianity. Normal Christianity is to be able to have that experience, that constant experience of God always doing good in our life and changing us for the better, making us more like his son. That's normal Christianity. Don't, don't buy teddy bear Christianity. You know, Look for the real thing, which always involves change through the Holy Spirit. So I guess... You know, as we come to conclusion here, are you feeling stuck? I certainly have felt times like that in my life when I just felt like I was flatlined with God. Um, the amazing thing is that God cannot wait for us to lean into him and come back into this process of growth, this change of growth. Uh, what do you do? We, we come back to God. We ask for and receive his forgiveness. Just be honest with God. Say, God, I'm... I'm just flatlined, and I don't know why, but forgive me for the things that have distracted me from you. Receive that fresh sense of forgiveness from God. Yield control back to the Holy Spirit. Paul is going to preach a message this next Sunday that's going to be significant, talking about sort of how to do this practically uh, in sowing into the Spirit. If you can catch that, make sure and be part of that. But yield control of your life back to the Holy Spirit, and then get ready for a fresh new power and a life change, because this is what God wants to do. He wants to bring us from glory to glory. As good as it has been, there's more. There's more for us in the Christian life. 
and there's consistent change and consistent growth. That's normal Christianity until the time that we go to see Jesus. I invite you to pray, if you would, with me. Lord, I thank you that you are an extravagant God and that you save the best for last. Lord, we, we just want to come in and be real with you. And Lord, we want to say, have your way with us, God. Your ways are always good, even though sometimes they're hard and they're stretching, Lord. We want to come in behind you and be obedient to what you want to do. Thank you that you're such a good God and you want relationship with us, Lord. We say thank you, Jesus. Amen.